We'll turn to Romans 11. We're getting in, uh, in territory. We might be able to actually finish this thing. Uh, not immediately, but sometime soon. Uh, pardon? Yeah, maybe, maybe in 2018 we'll finish. So <laughs> uh, once we get to chapter 12, things make a whole lot more sense if you've done a good job with 1 to 11. So uh, we'll move probably much more quickly through that portion, but um, not because it's not important, but because it'll make sense (laughs) to say what we say. When he says, I therefore beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, it makes sense. (laughs) Does that make sense? All right, so chapter 11 we're coming into some really difficult territory. Chapter 11, 1 to 10 is my, is my goal today. Um, <clears throat> but once we get to verse 11 and following, we've got some tough stuff to talk about, frankly. Uh, there are hard ideas in that section. And we'll, we may have to spend a few weeks in that portion of the, of the word. But uh, chapter 11, 1 to 11, 1 to 10 is difficult in itself because they're just simply... Uh, painful ideas in it. Uh, in terms of where we are in the book of Romans, um, we, we looked at this recently. Why is this not working? Okay. Um, we're in a five-step argument asking, asking and answering the question, uh, what about Israel? Why if, Paul, this is the gospel that God always intended, and you've taken us all the way back to Genesis, Paul. In Romans 4, you talked about uh, Abraham believing God and was counted to him for righteousness. If, if that's true, then why hasn't Israel accepted it? They're the people of God. They're the ones who always recognize the prophets. They're the ones who valued and preserved the word of God. So why... Haven't they accepted this message? And Paul's answer is really chapters one to eleven. But in eleven, he's going to bring up to the, bring up the answer. Frankly, uh, in order to understand what we're saying here, indeed, in much of this chapter, <clears throat> I have to go back to earlier parts parts of the book. Uh, right now, we're going to be saying uh, God has um, uh, preserved a remnant chosen by grace. But the hard part of the, of the passage is the rest of them he hardened. How can you say that? What, what does that mean to harden somebody? Well, go back in your thought to Romans chapter 1. Um, in Romans 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and wickedness of, some, of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Who do what? Suppress the truth. In the rest of chapter 1, he talks about the human race at large. Then, he, then in chapter 2, he focuses on the self-righteous in the human race. They suppress the truth, too, in unrighteousness. The only way you can be self-righteous is if you arrogate to yourself the right to define what righteousness is. And if you define for yourself, if you claim that right for yourself, you say God doesn't have the right to define what righteousness is. 
But I argue that all definitions come from God. If there is no God, there is no definition. Uh, this is a problem in modern thought. How do you define a word? By using what? Dictionary. Yeah. No, you don't define a word by using it. You find out what, it, what the dictionary says more it means. Words. You use more words. Well, how do you define those words? More words still. And eventually, you'll get back to the word that you were defining at the beginning. Yes? That's, a, that's what's called a circular argument. All arguments are circular in one sense or another, <clears throat> but some are, are guilty of what's called the vicious circle, in which uh, you say A is B, and, you, and I, you ask me, or I say A is B, and you say, how do you know A is B? Because B is A. <laughs> and so it's a vicious circle. Um, so unless there's some place for that to stop, there are no definitions. Nothing means anything, and that's where we are in our world today. That's why we can, we can have all of the things that are going on in the news that you know about and you're lamenting and you're struggling with. Yes or no? Yes. All right, so the, the issue is, unless I have a stopping point for definition, or perhaps better, a starting point for definition, I don't have any definitions at all. So if I think I define what righteousness is, I'm doing two things. I'm taking from God the right to define. And secondly, um, I'm suppressing his truth in unrighteousness. Then in chapter 3, you have that very important passage, beginning at verse 10. As it is written, there is... Oh, that's not true. Come on now, folks. You know better than that. There are some righteous. Amen? No. No? Oh, but... You know that that's not really what your heart believes when you cannot imagine that God would not save somebody you love. If he sacrificed his own son, why shouldn't he save somebody else? Well... But the moment that I start, that I start thinking, but, but, but why wouldn't he save that person? They have a choice. They've made a choice. Yeah, that's true, but that's not the way it works, unfortunately. Blackaby says God has no grandchildren. God does have no grandchildren. So, so the, the larger issue is, who is God working with? A, 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 a human race made up of wonderful, nice people, kind and loving and good. No. No. Well, but you know that's not true in your heart. Because you think, I, when, when Jen and I got married, I was leaving for the Army almost immediately. And my first um, training after BASIC was in Washington, D.C. And people at our home church said, oh, you won't like it up there. The pe people up there are cold and unfriendly. And we got up there, moved into an apartment. I've, I've told you this before. We moved into apartment, an apartment with about eight women who were all um, uh, widowed. And they treated us like eight grandmothers. And I was like, where are these unfriendly people? <laughs> I, I, I said, well, it's supposed to be nothing but unfriendly people up here. And where are these unfriendly people? I can't find them. Uh, and and uh, every place you go, don't you find this to be the case? Every place you go, you find kind and friendly people. Yes? So, is it really the truth that there is none righteous, no, not one? Yes. yes. 
Yes, and how can I say that that's true? Because God had... Because we know what we'd be like without God. We know what we'd be like, like without God. But more than that, God has defined humanity as in sin. Why? Why are we in sin? Yeah. What is, what is the essential element of our sinfulness? We do not believe. We have no faith in God. That's the, that's the crucial element. In... Um, I think it's Psalm 10, verse 4. The wicked in his heart says there is no God. Or perhaps another way to translate it would be, in, in, uh, in his heart, um, in the heart of the wicked, there is no room for God. How many people do you meet on a day-by-day basis for whom God is the first thought of the day and the last thought of the evening? For whom God is the first resort in time of trouble, not the last. How many people do you meet like that? Not enough. Not many. And if the if the uh, surveys are right, the number in the United States who do that is declining substantially, precipitately. Jim, are you saying that it, I've always regarded that psalm as saying that the wicked are atheists? You're saying that they're just May not be atheist, just no yeah. room for God. Yeah, later, later in verse 11, uh, the psalmist says, uh, uh, the wicked says, uh, God has forgotten. He will never pay attention. They're not theoretical atheists. They're practical atheists. They treat God as irrelevant, though they might, as part of their doctrine, have God as part of their, of their uh, concept of reality. The point I'm trying to get at is, to treat the God who is keeping the blood coursing through your veins as irrelevant, to treat the God who is keeping your, your breath, your, your mind controlling your breath so that you breathe in and breathe out, that he keeps that going. I, the mystery of death just overwhelms me at times. Uh, um, all of us have faced it in one way or another. But what, <laughs> what exactly is death? Yeah, I know, but I mean, medically, scientifically, what exactly is death? They still don't know. And if you don't know what death is, you don't know what life is either. Use that circular argument, it's the opposite of life. It's the opposite of life. The the issue for us is that everything that keeps us functioning depends on a reality that we cannot understand at this point. And scientists will always say, yet. What does yet mean? We will someday, but we don't right now. That's really nonsense, ultimately. And in terms of ultimate reality, we'll never understand it. So if that's the case, if all of us are predisposed from birth to treat God as irrelevant, um, my daughter was crawling. She, She was just crawling. She had not even started walking. It was our firstborn. <clears throat> Having children teaches a lot of theology. <laughs> and she was crawling across the floor, and I said, Jill, come here. And she looked up at me with rebellion in her eyes. I, I know rebellion. I have done it. I know what rebellion is. 
I saw it in her eyes, and I thought, well, there went the, the age of accountability. <laughs> because if she's already rebelling against the will of authority, then what, what is her heart for God? Doesn't have one. Um, so what we're dealing with in Romans 11 is a passage in which God has made some choices. He has not cho- made choices to make bad people worse. He has made choices to leave people where they are. It's not that God chooses who will be wicked and who will be righteous. It is that God chooses among the wicked, all of whom deserve everlasting separation from God. He chooses among the wicked, some to whom he will show his mercy. Are you with me here? So there is none righteous, not even one. And why is that the case? Verse 18 in chapter 3 makes the, makes the final diagnosis. Uh, there is no fear of God in their eyes. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. So, if, if these things are true, then when Paul, when, when Paul talks here in chapter 11 of God preserving a remnant and hardening the rest, he is not saying he's taking all these nice folks in Israel saved some and made others wicked. I want you to remember in chapter 1, God handing them over, remember this? Is not God taking nice people and making them worse. It's taking wicked people and giving them more reign to do what's, what wickedness is already in their heart. How, how often have you thought or heard the statement, there but for the grace of God go I? Yes? How, how often have you, have you heard that or, or thought it? then, folks, if that's true, then Romans 11 is talking about there but for the grace of God go I. So verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. So I say, God has not cast off his people, has he? Whom he foreknew. Uh, has he? No, no. Well, why does he even raise the question? Well, look at 1021. Um... But to Israel, he says, all day I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contradictory people. Um, I was just working on some ideas related to uh, the work of Jesus. Um, And it took me to Psalm 78. I encourage you sometime to read Psalm 78. Get God's diagnosis of Israel's position, their spiritual condition in the Old Testament period. This leads up, Psalm 78 does, leads up to the time of David. So, so all the way through Psalm 78, you've got two things going back and forth. One is God does wonderful things for Israel. And then you get Israel's response. And then he does more wonderful things for Israel, and you get Israel's response. What kind of response is it? Well, it's rebellious. And yet, God is compassionate toward Israel. So time, time you get to Psalm 78, 38, there's a, in a long section, 38 uh, to 50, I forget how far it goes, 56 or something like that, 18 verses in Psalm 78, is all about how good God is to Israel, and they, they rebel. Why? Because that's the natural state of the human, human heart. That is the default setting for us. And when I, uh, when, I am not, when I am not careful, 
I revert to that default setting. I'm always a rebellious person. So, God has not... Surely, if... Surely, if God has extended his hands, as we saw in, Psalm, in, in Romans 10, if he has extended his hands to Israel all day long, he's been sending prophets to them over and over and over through their history, and he, they've described to them, they've declared to them the, the uh, grace of God and the call of faith, and Israel didn't hear it, then surely at some point God's going to get fed up with Israel and just throw them away. So Paul asks in 11.1, so I say, God has not rejected his people, has he? Of course not. For I, Paul says, am a Benjamite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of, I'm sorry, I'm an Israelite of the uh, tribe of Abraham of the tribe uh, of the uh, uh, seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast off his people whom he foreknew. Just to renew our acquaintance with this word of foreknowledge, Foreknowledge is, is not so much that, especially, by the way, is it a whom that God foreknew in this verse, or is it a what that God foreknew? Does, does it mean different, something different if I say I know algebra and, and if I say I know Ken? Are those the exact same things? No. What's the difference? Yeah. Uh, the, the thing, the knowledge of algebra, which I do not have, by the way, but <laughs> by vow before God, I do not have the knowledge of algebra. But, but uh, uh, the knowledge of algebra is a, is a set of facts of which I'm aware and I'm able to use, yes? But the, but the, relation, the uh, knowledge of a person is a relationship. That's true in English, it's true in Greek and Hebrew as well. And so the point is that God didn't know something about these people, what did he know about them? Everything. everything, but particularly what? We'll look at 1021. What did he, what did he know about them? And dis- yeah. So if, if, if he foreknew them on the basis of what he knew about them beforehand, what would he have done with them? Cast them off. He'd have cast them off. But he hasn't cast them off. Why? One of the the great mysteries of God's character and his work is that he's a covenant-making God. As uh, Rick, your point about the Trinity being, that means that God is a, how did you say it? He's He's a Trinity. It's intrinsic to communicate. It's intrinsic in a community, in a uh, Trinity to communicate. It's intrinsic in the nature of God to communicate. And that means, furthermore, that he longs for relationship with everything that he creates. And in that longing for relationship, he has allowed, for appropriate reasons, sin to enter upon the, uh, upon the human race. We looked at this in Romans 9 a few weeks ago. In Romans 9, there are the vessels of wrath and there are the vessels of mercy. Do you recall this? The vessels of wrath. Why should there be both? Well, there's a large reason, folks, if God's purpose in this creation is to reveal grace, you have to have unworthy people. You can't reveal grace where there are worthy people. Grace is only for the unworthy. Is that true or false? Okay. 
But, it, but, but that's my point. The human race has to be in sin so that we will be appropriate recipients of the grace of God. But, as we said in that study of Romans 9, uh, if everybody got grace equally, it would still be grace, but no one would know for sure what grace was. So you have to have, alongside the revelation of grace, you have to have the revelation of just wrath against sin. Because it, it must necessarily be seen what those who received grace deserved. Are you with me here? So, not a socialist. He's not a socialist. The, yeah, the, the point I'd make is the point that I made then, and that is, I wonder, I, don't, I doubt that this is exactly what God's going to do, but since Paul says we're going to judge the world, I wonder if I'll have a courtroom and I'll be sitting in judgment and each, each sinner that's brought before me will be, will be charged and I'll have to dis- hear, the, hear the evidence and then pronounce judgment on them. And I wonder if each sinner I will pronounce judgment on sinned exactly like I did. <laughs> so I become overly aware of what I deserve from God. I personally have to confront that. Now that's all perspiration. It's not inspiration. So it's certainly not revelation. So don't go too far with that. But I just, I just wonder about these things. Am I making any sense to you? Yes. So uh, God has not cast off his people whom he foreknew. Why not? Because he made a covenant with Abraham. And note what Paul does in saying, For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham. God made a covenant and swore on an oath to Abraham that he would, he would bless the nations through Abraham's own physical seed. If God doesn't keep his own word, then God isn't worthy to be God. So I have to have um, an unworthy people to whom God in his mercy will risk looking unjust See, we think that if God doesn't save people we love, there's something wrong with the justice of God. Oh no, it's because you, are not, you don't understand justice that you can even say that. It's because we think we have the right to define justice. God doesn't. See, God gets to define everything. He's the creator. So if he gets to define justice, then your loved one whom you love, God also loves, but he is going to judge them in justice. It's you who are not getting justice from God. The justice due to you went, it went to Jesus. Jim, now where do the replacement theology people come in at this verse who say, well, uh, it's not his spiritual, his physical seed, it's his spiritual seed, i.e. Christians now. Well, let me put that off until we get it later into chapter 11 because we'll have to talk about it there. Uh, so, uh, so, uh, Paul is already alerting us to the future of Israel. There is a hope for Israel. A kind of climax for the whole chapter. Look over in chapter 11 at verse 26. And thus all Israel shall be saved. If Israel is the church, then that's a tautology. He's just saying the same thing twice. All the saved will be saved. Well, yeah, and what's your point? But if, if we're talking about physical Israel, being saved. Then he's saying something rather remarkable. 
And Israel, who has been rebellious throughout, throughout its whole history, God is finally going to save a whole generation of them. We'll talk about in what sense do we mean all Israel later, but at this point we'll just leave it at that. Uh, look, at, look at verses 26 and 27. And in this way all Israel shall be saved as it is written. A deliverer shall come from Zion. He will, he will turn ungodliness from Jacob. And, and uh, uh, this will be my covenant with them when I, when I forgive their sins. Israel is the church. The church's sins need to be forgiven. You can't get into the church without your sins being forgiven. <laughs> so if that's the case, then we must be talking about physical Israel. So back to chapter 11, verse uh, 3. Um, I'm sorry, verse 2. God has not cast off his people whom he foreknew. He, said, he, he, he entered into a relationship with them before they even existed. In Deuteronomy, Moses says, uh, uh, This covenant which the Lord made with you, he made not only with those of you who are alive here today, but with all, all of those who are not here today. All, all coming generations. He's entered into a covenant relationship with all covenant coming generations of Israel. He foreknew them. Um, or do you, do you not know in Elijah, or perhaps better just to get the point in the passage about Elijah, since the Bible was not divided into chapters until uh, some centuries after <laughs> Paul wrote, um, the only way a Jew had to refer to any portion of scripture <coughs> was to refer to a major event or, or a writer. Are you with me? So in Elijah, and they, they knew where to go. That's First Kings 19, just in case. All right, so do you not know in Elijah what the scripture says, how he intercedes with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. But what does the oracle say to him? In the days of Elijah, about 80 years after King Solomon's death, uh, this is King Ahab in the northern kingdom. Yes? They are worshiping Baal now. It's not the golden calf that they're worshiping anymore. Oh, they've thrown that in along with all the other gods. The golden calf was, was intended originally to be a symbol of the Lord. But that was still what God prohibited in the, in the, in the uh, Ten Commandments, or the Ten Suggestions. <laughs> um, <laughs> You shall have no graven, make for yourself no graven image. Jeroboam thought, yeah, yeah, but the people need it. So he made a golden calf. Um, but by Ahab's day, they're, they're in full-blown, open Canaanite religion. And, and, um, and in that day, in a territory that can hardly support... Oh, thank you. Goodness, I appreciate it. Um, in a territory that can hardly support the, 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 the current population of Israel, uh, they, they've, for years they've been uh, shipping water from Turkey to, to, for the Israel to have enough drinking water. I don't know whether you were aware of that or not. Um, so, so in a territory that can hardly support the pro present population of Israel, uh, then... And that's in a day when agriculture is really, really, really productive. Yes, today? 
Yes? And you can, you can buy. They're rich so they can buy. The nation is rich so they can buy food to supplement their, their productivity. In that case, then, in the days of Ahab, when there is a famine for three years, how big is the population? A few tens of thousands? Are you with me? Maybe. Are you with me? Out of that population, God said to Elijah, I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed down to Baal. Oh, why didn't he save the whole nation? Because he has a dual purpose. The primary purpose is to reveal grace. But in order to do that, he has to show the sinfulness of sin. And those 7,000 men who haven't bowed down to Baal would have bowed down to Baal, except that God moved into their lives and did something unusual. So these are not unusually righteous people that God saved. They're not likable people as opposed to all those unlikable people. They are just people. And by the good mercy of God and in his grace, he he brought 7,000 out of Israel. So, verse 5, so then... Of this type. Yeah. He refers to his own conversion. Right. And good grief, he was out there slaughtering Jews or, around, or, or, or arresting them. Yeah. He was, so clearly, he was not mm. someone seeking righteousness, the tr- true righteousness. Yes. He was suppressing the truth. And that, that portion of, of Acts is fascinating. You have in chapter 9 the, uh, uh, the, the persecution, I'm sorry, the, the conversion of Paul. You have right at the end of 8 and the beginning of 9, you have first the death of Stephen and then Paul beginning his persecuting work. And on the way to Damascus, he is, he is, he's on the, I say this in class, he's on the way to arrest Christians in Damascus and, and, and the Lord arrested him. <laughs> this is fascinating. Uh, uh, he, he got collared, if you will. Uh, but at the end of that section, you have uh, another persecutor, Herod. God saves the persecutor uh, Saul and judges the persecutor Herod. Why the difference between the two? Was Herod more wicked than Paul? No, Herod was just evil. Paul was more wicked. Because at, hmm? Paul was self-righteous. When, when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, what was he preaching against? What, what moral principles was he preaching against? Immoral principles was he preaching against? Pride. Pride and self-righteousness. Consider the ending of the, of the sermon. Um, enter by the narrow gate. We've talked about that on several occasions. Um, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. You remember this? Then he says, many shall come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? And did we not heal in your name? And did we not do many great miracles in your name? They look godly. False prophets don't don't function. They're not successful if they don't look godly. Uh, If I have two bottles here on on this lectern, one has um, a clear liquid in it, and it's marked with a poison sign, and it says arsenic on it. 
and the other has milk in it, but has a little bit of arsenic in it, which is the more dangerous bottle? Um, no. Yeah, the, milk. the milk, because you're not likely to, build, to drink the arsenic. Oh, so it's not legal. Yeah. Now, are you with me here? It's far more dangerous to have some arsenic in the milk than it is to have an arsenic, arsenic in a bottle marked arsenic. Because you're deceived easier. You're deceived easier. It's not how much truth is in the lie, it's how, much, how, how, how important the lie is that's in the truth. That's critical. So, yeah. One, one guy heard speaking said they, uh, the false teachers, they know our vocabulary. Mm -hmm. It's our vocabulary, but not our dictionary. It's the only, that's the only way they can function. All false teachers have to use our language. Just, they just redefine everything. Because, after all, man is the measure of all things. Which puts us into a vicious cycle. And if man is the measure of all things, there is no measure of anything. So this postmodernism that you've heard about is, is tied up in this issue. Relativity. In, in relative, relative, relativism. Yeah, relativism. Good, that's the word I was looking for. Couldn't find it. So, uh, verse 5. So then, even at the present time, there is a remnant according to the... Mm, the E word. Don't say the E word. The election. Of grace. Folks, if God didn't choose some, nobody would be saved. And in Israel, God has never left himself without a testimony. I, I've told you about Dr. Bernard Weiss, his testimony. He was a, a boy in uh, Vienna, 19, late 1930s, was a Jewish family. His family was taken into the camps. What's the camp outside of uh, Vienna? I can't think. Is that no? That's in Germ That's in Poland. Dachau. Is it Dachau? He was taken into Dachau, and you know what his expectation was. Yeah. But he was called by the camp commandant into his office, and he said to Doctor Weiss, "He said, if you can get out of Europe, you can go." Wow. He never did, as far as I know. He never did know why the guy did that. There were people who were getting Jews out of, the, out of the continent. He got to England, couldn't speak a word of English, had an uncle who lived in New Jersey. And so, um, hmm? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so he uh, uh, got, got passage to New Jersey and, and was educated there and, and was growing up, wanted to become a doctor. So he was looking around for good pre-med programs. And as a Jew, escapee from Dachau, um, uh, coming to the United States, wanting to become a doctor, he settled on the most likely of all pre-med program, programs at Oklahoma Baptist University. <laughs> Can you imagine? This isn't conceivable to me. <laughs> when he got there, he met this nice little Christian girl who led him to the Lord. And he is a branch snatched out of the fire. He's, a rem he's part of the remnant. What, what did it take to move a Jewish boy who had nothing to offer the commandant to release him? God's power was working in the life of Dr. Weiss. Am I making sense to you? And how many others are there like that? My point is that God has reserved for himself a remnant in Israel. There always will be a remnant in Israel. This is why we believe that there is a future for Israel, because God has always kept a remnant.
in Israel. Why? What's the point? Why would you do that? And he goes on. Verse 6. If it's by grace, if the choice is by grace, it's no more of works. Otherwise, grace is not no longer grace. Now, what's he saying? Well, he's saying the same thing as you say when you say Mr. Nitrogen and Mr. Glycerin don't like each other, and whenever they get together, there's a big explosion. They just blow up at each other. Amen? So you want to keep them separate, yes? But grace and works are the same thing. They're incompatible, uh, as Paul is using the term right here. He uses it in other ways in other passages. Right here, he's using it in a way that's incompatible with grace. On what basis does God decide to give grace to me instead of to somebody else? There's no basis in me. Don't you remember Romans 3.21? 23, rather? Being just, 3.24 it is, I'm sorry. Being justified. Do you remember the next word? Freely. Freely. That word is used, and we talked about this. This has been months ago, so I despair of you ever remembering it. But um, uh, freely is used in John 15. Jesus says, uh, they hated me without a cause. If you hated somebody, what would be the reason? What You would give some kind of reason. What would be the reason for hating that person? They did something. They did something. Something in the person. But... Jesus has, he says just before that, if, if I had not come and done the things which no one else had done, they would not have sinned, but now their sin remains. And thus it is fulfilled what is written in the prophet, they hated me without a cause. There's no reason. Think about all the horrible things Jesus did. Turning water to wine, uh, healing the centurion's son. Yes? The royal. Um, terrible. Just horrible. Uh, causing, uh, walking on the water, feeding 5,000. Um, uh, healing a man born blind, right? Raising Lazarus from the dead. Horrible things that Jesus did. Yes? Horrible things that he said um, uh, about being born again and having hope before God. There's no reason in Jesus. Or it's used, the same word freely is used in first, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 3. How, reminding the Thessalonians about Paul's own practice in Thessalonica, that he, I didn't eat any man's bread freely. That is, our text will read something like, without paying for it. Are you with me here? That's the same word that's used in Romans 3.24, being justified with no cause in myself, without my paying for it. I'm justified freely because of the grace of God. It's the grace of God that is the reason that I am justified. I get grace because God is a God of grace. But to be a God of grace, if he showed everyone grace equally, how would we know the justice of God and how would we know what grace really is? Because everybody would get it. I couldn't, dis- I couldn't distinguish it from mercy. When, when a criminal who's convicted is standing for the sentencing per- portion of the, of, the, of the court case, and he says, I throw myself on the mercy of the court. What's he hoping for? Mercy. Yeah, but what's he looking for? Yeah, I, I want to... Would you give me as light a penalty as you can? Maybe even commute the penalty? Yes? But that's not grace. Because nobody paid the penalty. 
in grace, somebody paid the penalty. Took the infinite wrath of God on the cross, bore that infinite wrath of God, so that it is now fully satisfied. Because he's an infinite person, he can bear the infinite wrath of God without reference to time. And having borne that infinite wrath of God, he offers it to us on the condition of faith, which he then grants to us. Philippians 1.29, do you know that verse? You need to know it. For to you it has been given, not only to believe in his name, but also to suffer for his sake. Who grants you the gift to suffer for the sake of God? Who gives you the grace, the gift of being able to believe? Christ. Am I making any sense to you? It's a gift. Um, So he he raises the issue there in verse 6. He sets as a basic axiom. One of the commentaries made that statement. I thought, boy, that's really helpful. What's an axiom in in geometry? Pardon? One of the proofs, I believe. Is, is, the conditions. Yeah. These are the basic facts, not always provable, but that they're basic facts on which everything else is built. Are you with me? Right. So for Paul, it's axiomatic. Grace and works cannot coexist as principles. If Mr. Grace and Mr. Works move into the same house, they're going to blow up. Glow up. <laughs> <laughs> blow up (laughs) and destroy one another. So I can't mix a little grace with works. I can't mix a little works with grace. Look at Galatians 5, where Paul says that you can fall from grace. Yes, he does. Haven't you read your Bible? (laughs) No, you haven't. You haven't been been listening. (laughs) Galatians 5. Um... Verse uh, uh, 2, say, I, Paul, tell you that if you are circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. I testify again to every man who is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. You want some law? Can't have some law. You've got to have all the law or none. And then he goes on to say, verse 4, our translations go all over the map here because the, the verb of this verse is difficult to translate. It has so many different possibilities of meaning. I'm going to give you the one that I think fits best in the context here. Um, you have, and all I can do is paraphrase it. So this is not a good translation, and you wouldn't want to use it as a translation. But you have, you have been severed from the benefits that flow to you from Christ. You who are trying to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Uh-huh, but it's still, it's still falling from grace. And Paul says we can do it. How do you fall from grace? Not by sinning. You fall from grace by trying to be righteous by your own by your own righteousness and by your own definition of it. Are you, am I making sense? Yeah. So, if this is the case, then as principles of life before God, I cannot mix grace and works. How do we do that? Well, we're talking about here how one comes to uh, comes into the life of salvation. Let me extend it a, a, a bit. <coughs> Why was Israel commanded, or or let me say it differently because that question can be answered too many different ways. 
What would be the result for Israel if they obeyed the law, obeyed the covenant? Blessing. Blessing, right? And what what does blessing look like? (laughs) Yeah, well, but in the covenant, not the kingdom. In the covenant, they're going to be rich and they're going to have lots of food to eat and lots of children and everybody's, they're going to rule all the nations around them. Are you with me here? Have respect. Have be respected. So, if by your works you believe you will enjoy the blessings of God, you are trying to mix works and grace. And I either am under grace or I'm under works, and I cannot be under both because they are mutually exclusive. So if by my obedience I think I'm going to be happier, as a man said to me in a class in Memphis several years ago, he said, but we're, if we're obedient, won't we be happier? I responded to him, was Jesus. Jesus uh, had, a, had a beautiful house, yes, and a stable of horses to pull all of his chariots, amen? Yes? No? He has no place to lay his head. And he was a man... He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Would you say Jesus had his best life now? <laughs> that's He's the rich whole, now. But that's the whole premise of the gospel that's circulating. Yeah. The, the, the point then is, if you think that by what you are doing, you're going to make your life better, by that better, you give your definition to it. I'm going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Uh, even, even my mother was infected with this. I'm looking at that, and it doesn't say fell from grace. It says fell away from grace. Yeah. In other words, you're removing yourself. It isn't as though you had it and you lost it. Yeah, you're, you're moving away from the power that comes from God through grace. You want power to live the Christian life, folks. The only way to get it is, is to submit to the grace of God. And as you submit to the grace of God, two things will happen. First, you'll see that everything you do is simply his work in you. And second, you will, you will then, um, then you will begin to see that there are things that you did, used to enjoy, that you no, no longer enjoy, you never even want to do again. And that takes, that takes time. It doesn't happen immediately. It takes a lot of time, in fact. It takes a lot of growing up. It's called maturity. And maturity, some of us are still working on that. <laughs> I never intended at age 52 to start growing spiritually again. I, was, I had it made. I was where I wanted to be. <laughs> God jerked me out of Memphis where I was very comfortable and brought me to Dallas where I was not. And uh, spent the last 17 years working more on growing. I don't like it. Not at this point in life. I'm ready to settle in. So, if it's by grace, it's no more of works. Because otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Jim, is this, this sounds awful, similar to the language he uses early in Romans when he talks about being a free person and then putting yourself back under slavery? Yeah. It's that same. Uh-huh, same idea in Romans 7. So, verse 7 then. What then? What Israel was seeking it did not uh, obtain. Go back to chapter 9 for just a moment. Verse 30. He's reiterating much of what he said earlier in the chapter, earlier in the section, 9 to 11. So 9.30, 
What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who were not pursuing righteousness achieved it. But it was the righteousness of faith. But Israel, though pursuing the law of righteousness, did not, did not come up to it. Why? Because it was not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled at the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. They, don't, they didn't want grace. They wanted, I, I've, I've asked you this, I asked my Sunday school class in Memphis this same question. Did Saul of Tarsus love God with all his heart, soul, and strength? And even elders and elders' wives said, yes, that cannot be. Because Jesus said, if you had known my father, you would have known me. Who is Paul persecuting? Yeah. So, so in Acts 9, in the, in the conversion experience of Paul, why are you persecuting me? He has no love for God. What does he love? Yeah, and his own righteousness. That, no, that's the point. And that's why Paul says to the Galatians, you, because they have known grace and they're trying to go back to the law. See, by the way, you can't lose your salvation by obeying God's commandments. But you can lose the power that comes to you through grace if you are worried about doing X so that you can get Y. So, verse 7, what then Israel was seeking, this they did not obtain, but the election obtained it, and the rest were hardened. They were turned over to their own desires. You want this, then you can have it. Pursue it all you want. Let it take you wherever it takes you. And it will take them. This is then back to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Enter by the narrow gate, because broad is the gate. And easy is the way. All Israel believed that the Pharisees were righteous. Most Israel didn't believe that, didn't like the Pharisees, but they believed they were righteous. And they figured the Pharisees were certainly going to get into the kingdom. The, the election obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The Pharisees were hardened. Do you not remember Matthew, Matthew 13 when Jesus speaks about the parables. Why is he teaching in parables? Because, because some who understand, if their ears are open, they'll hear the message. Otherwise, it's yeah. not intended for them. But it's specifically to hide the truth from those who are already hardened. And, by, and, and you should go read, uh, um, next time you think about Matthew 13 and the parables in that passage, go to John 12 and read the same quotation Jesus gives again he changes the terms, and then go to Acts 28 and read Paul's final words to the, to the Jews in, in Rome. All three places he quotes that same, they, they quote the same passage, but they change the nature of the verbs. In Isaiah, it's an instruction. In Matthew, it's a purpose. In John 12, it's a result. And in Acts 28, it's the outcome. So, verse 8, the rest were hardened as it, as it was written. He has given to them, God has given to them a spirit of slumber, eyes that do not see, ears that do not hear to this very day. 
this is quoting from Deuteronomy, he gives quotations or allusions to the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The law here in verse 8, but that phrase, a spirit of slumber that you have, yeah? Stupor. Stupor. Stupor is a good word. Uh, it's from Isaiah 29.10. So you got the law and the prophets. And then verse 9, he quotes the Psalms, Psalm 68. I'm sorry, Psalm 69. Uh, Let their table uh, be a snare. The table is not your dinner table. It's the table where you're preparing the sacrifice, for uh, preparing your animal for sacrifice. Let their very acts of worship be a snare and a trap and a, and a cause of stumbling and a cause of offense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and their back bound down continually. Does that go back to your illustration of the milk with a little bit of poison in it? No, I don't think so. It's, it's actually turning it around. Uh, the very things they think they're doing serving God. This, it, it, didn't Jesus say something like this? A time is coming when those who, who put you to death will think they're, they're, they're rendering service to God. So he's, he, they, they think that they're serving God and doing what they're doing, but it turns out that they're only sealing their own condemnation. That's a hard place to end, isn't it? Uh, we don't have time to get into verses 11 and following. What he's going to do in the rest of the passage, 11, 11 to 24, God gave the promise to Gentiles through faith, and the purpose was to stir je- Jews up to, to jealousy. So number five... 1125 to32, uh, thus he will stir Israel to jealousy, uh, bringing them to salvation through faith. So one of our tasks as Gentiles is to live under the grace of God to the extent that Jews come to, to envy us, become jealous of us. They're getting our promises. Because though we've been trying to build our own little edifices and our own little kingdoms. You can't build an organization with grace. Organizations can't survive on grace. They have to survive on rules because they have to protect people. They have to protect the organization against the people in the organization. It's the, it's the body of Christ that we can live by grace. But because we haven't thought of ourselves as the body of Christ, we've thought of ourselves as small organizations in part, in many other things. It's, it's endemic in our hearts to believe that by doing, we will, we, will, we will be. Rather, Paul says it's by being that you will do. So I can't be righteous until I'm declared righteous by God. So uh, what we've got to do is stop dallying with the old way of I, I do so that I can be. I do so that I can be blessed. I do so that I can be healthy or happy. I do so that. Instead, I must come to embrace the kind of thing that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And as I've said before, with that and a raise next year, I'll be doing pretty well. (laughs) But the reason you can laugh about that is we all recognize that the raise isn't really a means of happiness. So what we've got to do is embrace what God says is wealth 
That's why Jesus could do what he did. He embraced what God said was wealth. I have to embrace what God said is blessing. I have to embrace what God said is good. Because what is good and blessing and, and wealth isn't what all of us have been working for all of our lives. Let's close with prayer. Father, I'm just appalled at myself that uh, I've, tr- I've, I've tried to be God. I have tried to define things for myself, and then I've, I've been upset with you for not doing some of those things. Father, uh, lead all of us to live by your grace to the extent that we begin to revel in the wealth that's ours in Christ. Then we don't worry about losing this or that, losing our reputation in the world for the sake of Jesus because the only person with whom we must have honor is you and in him we do. It's for Jesus' sake, therefore, that we pray. Amen. Can I ask you a quick question? Sure. That's why I dashed up here.